0: Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. I have two brief opening illustrations, and one of which that probably only half of you, the older group of you, that will remember, and one that should be much more current. Some of us remember about 33 years ago the Iran hostage crisis was between Iran and the United States where 52 U.S. Uh, diplomats were held hostage for over 400 days, 444 days to be exact. And that's when the Islamic students took over the American embassy. But the point is this, is we consider this theme rescued from the power of darkness, rescued from the dominion of darkness. As we consider that type of theme, I would ask you to put yourself in one of those 52 diplomats' place. What would it be like to be held hostage for 444 days? To be held in terror every day, not knowing if you're going to make it to the next day. No doubt in some place dark, some place that's not pleasant to be. But yet, when they were rescued, they rejoiced. They were alive, and they came home to the United States of America. Or consider more recently, just months ago, that kidnapper in the um, city of Cleveland, Ariel Castro, you remember he held three female victims for over 10 years, and some of the news stories that I was reading said that it was like a dungeon environment that they were kept in. Some of you might remember that they only saw the sun a couple of times throughout that 10 years. Consider the terror, consider the darkness, consider the despair that would go through those young ladies' minds as they were held captive, the hopelessness, and yet finally when they're rescued, I remember one news story of one of them being interviewed and just shielding herself from the sun because now she had finally come to the light. Well, our text says that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In the immediate preceding verse, the the, um, other verb that is there, that he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints uh, and in light. And so you have this contrast of light and darkness. So let's go ahead and read just from verse 9 to verse 14. This is our third and final um, sermon on this prayer of Paul. And I do believe verses 13 and 14 are connected with it in regards to Uh, preaching the indicative as far as what God has done for us. Beginning in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, And increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption." the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would give us understanding into the glorious themes of the gospel that we have contained and and just these couple of phrases here. Lord, we need to be reminded of what that domain of darkness was of which we were delivered out of. And for some here, perhaps, that are actually in that domain of darkness even now, but Lord, to consider that you have transferred us. You have put us in the kingdom of your own beloved Son. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven our sins. And, Lord, remind us of these grand truths today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Paul is stating uh, for us what God has done for us. C.H. Spurgeon said, The heart of the gospel is redemption. And the essence of redemption is is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins, you do not fully understand the gospel. That is the crux of the gospel. He was our substitute. He stood in our place. If one percent or one-tenth of one percent depended on us and our good efforts, none of us would be saved. Well, as we've been considering this prayer, just to sum it up in really just a few sentences, Paul has been praying for the Colossians that they would come to a knowledge of his will. And why is that so important? We need to know God's will if we are going to glorify God with our lives. And so he even says that you would walk worthy before the Lord. And that's not trying to earn brownie points. That's walking in response to what he's already done for us. He gave those four present tense participles of what walking worthy looks like. Do you remember what they were? Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God that comes from the means of grace, reading the word, hearing the preached word, and so forth, being strengthened with his power, and then joyously giving thanks in response. And then last week, we just touched, began to touch on the, um, there's, there's three past tense heiress verbs that he uses and the first is at the end of verse 12 giving thanks to the father why because he has qualified us to share in this rich inheritance that we have with the saints and then today we're going to look at the next two that he's rescued us and that he's transferred us and so we're going to look at those today so two simple points today and the first is in verse 13 the powerful deliverance in salvation. If you are in Christ today, you have been delivered from this domain of darkness. As I mentioned, these past tense verbs, qualified, rescued, transferred, they speak of what God has already done for us. Not necessarily, they'll come in a full realization later, but it's something that has happened already and something that we enjoy now. Theologians call this a realized eschatology. In verses 13 and 14 are some of the It's the shortest summary probably in the Bible that we have that summarized the doctrine of redemption and what it means to be redeemed by Him. If you're familiar with Colossians 1, and believe me, I have been tempted to continue through with Colossians 1, it's like that's the springboard, this prayer, and then what God has done in redemption, and then that's what propels Him for verses 15 to 23 with that glorious picture here. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then 18 to 23, he talks about the church, and he is also the head of the body, the church, the body of believers. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So you see what happens here is he, he says something about the work of Christ. He goes on to expound Christ and eternity past and, and his present role is head of the church. You might think of it as the book of Romans, which most of us know, but verses, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, right? For I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what does Paul do for the rest of the book? Expounds what that gospel is. And that's sort of what Paul does here. Now I want you to notice something else if you look at our text carefully. And I I, I may have touched on it last week. Verses 9 to 12a, he's speaking second person, you, you Colossians. But notice what Paul does. He switches to the first person. You see who has qualified us to share in this inheritance. It's not as though because he's an apostle that he's guaranteed this right. No, it's this, he's, he, he, he comes in the same way as we do. In verses 13 and 14, he's rescued us. He's transferred us. And so the switch of pronouns is very important for us to see. God has delivered us from the tyranny of darkness and placed us under the kingdom of his beloved Son. And literally, the way that reads in, in the original Greek is in the Son of his love. Isn't that beautiful? It's, he's transferred us into the Son, the person of Christ, of His love, of His adoration. Isn't that what we heard at the baptism of Christ? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In whom I take delight in. In whom I rejoice in. Same thing at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see that language that is used. This type of rescue takes almighty power. This is not something that you can go home and Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, okay, I'm going to be delivered from the domain of darkness. This takes power from on high. It is God's power. Of course, darkness is a metaphor for evil. Those in darkness are under the rule of Satan. And this is a major theme through the Old Testament. That's why we read the verses in Exodus. But if you'll, if you'll turn back to Exodus 3, I want to go back a little earlier. Just so we can see that the deliverance of God's people from alien powers is a It's a repeated theme as they often found themselves in distress. Exodus 3, when Moses is being commissioned, we see this theme already. The burning bush, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to what? Deliver them, the theme of deliverance, from the power of the Egyptians and to what? Bring them up to the land of a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do You see the idea there of delivered and then bringing them? It's the same thing that Paul's using in our text before us. Go over to chapter 6 and verse 6. He's rehashing the covenant and so forth, but just for the sake of time, just to read verse 6, he's telling what to say. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. You see even more of the themes of our text right here in this very verse. And then, of course, what our brother Marlon read for us in chapter 14, this is the, after all the plagues and, and as the Red Sea is being parted, Moses says to the people, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, in verse 13, which he will accomplish for you today. in the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power of the Lord that he had used against the Egyptians, they did what? They feared God. They had a fear of the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Well, so too for us. As we see sinners being rescued from the domain of darkness, from the shackles of sin, it is a confirmation that God is indeed still at work. It should be a confirmation at every baptism that we see and every testimony that we see of those getting saved that God is in the business of saving the lost, of rescuing and delivering from from darkness and transferring them to the kingdom of light. Sadly, as the Old Testament goes on, we know again and again the Jews hardened their hearts and they had forgotten. So in Judges 8 and verse 34, it says, the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all of their enemies on every side. But also the psalmists, the various psalmists that we have in the book of Psalms, expressed this idea again and again, looking back on God's past faithfulness as great encouragement that God will deliver them from their current affliction, whatever that might be, from enemies, danger, sickness, death, both national and personal. Psalm 79, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 86, for your loving kindness towards me is great, And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. In the New Testament as well, we have this theme, the last petition in the Lord's Prayer. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Paul, in his thanksgiving prayer to the Thessalonians, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And then it's, it's almost, uh, it's very ironic, we read in our New Testament reading from Acts 26, but if you look at what Paul says, I'm only going to read one verse for the sake of time, it's almost as though he has this very text in Colossians 1 in mind as he says this, as he's telling and testifying to Agrippa um, his calling and, and what his calling was, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. "...from the dominion of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me." You see how he picks up all three of those themes just in that verse from our text. So Paul goes on and he says, "...we've been rescued," the idea of somebody in absolute desperation, flailing their arms, drowning in the sea, being absolutely rescued... But then, he says, we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is the deliverance that we've been qualified for by the work of Christ and the sphere of light, as he says. And it's an utter contrast to the power of darkness in which we all lived before we came to Christ. Maybe some of you can't remember that power of darkness. Darkness. Some of you, we've, I've heard many of your testimonies were converted at a very young age, at 8, 9, 10, 12, whatever. For myself, it was age 25, so I can remember very vividly part of my adult life being in the domain of darkness. Paul uses two different terms here. The idea of rescued and transferred. Two different prepositions were from darkness to darkness. And then the, the uh, different objects, the domain of darkness, and the kingdom of his beloved son. Turn over to chapter 2 of Colossians. And just look at verses 13 and 14. I have a similar theme here. It's expanded upon. The metaphor here is dead and alive. And when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Two states, being dead, then being alive, taking all the debt that we owed and throwing it upon the cross and nailing it to the cross where Christ would suffer and pay for all that debt. Then look at verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. By the way, the the phrase by him, through him, in him, it's just Christ, Christ, Christ is everywhere in the book of Colossians. It's a repeated theme. But the point is, is that the rulers and authorities through the work of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, were completely disarmed. They were made a public displace and so that now there is no longer any power, that wicked power over you. And so when he says rescued from the dominion of darkness, that's the picture. It's because of the work of Christ and what he has done. Paul is referring to that spiritual realm in which every unbeliever is held in, in bondage and in captivity. A realm that exists and is, which is very real, but for the believer, we have been transferred to the kingdom of his son. And so, what is the deciding factor as to where you live today? It's really what you think about Christ. Okay? It, it's, it's, it's how do you relate to the Son of God? Who do you think Jesus Christ is? Is he a moral teacher? Is he a good teacher? Is he a compassionate healer? Well, he's all those things. But do you believe that he is the incarnate son of God, the only sin bearer that came to purchase your salvation? You see, that makes the great difference, my brothers and sisters. And so he speaks of this kingdom, this, the word for dominion or domain of darkness, this authority of darkness. And then the kingdom, of course, of his son speaks of a rule that cannot be shaken why would anyone want to remain in bondage? Why would anybody want to remain in shackles and in sadness and in despair? Ephesians uses this language, that we formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Satan. In Ephesians 2.3, among them, we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and you think, the human race is doomed, there is no hope. But Ephesians 2, 4, the first two words should be words that you should paste on a mirror, that you have pasted in your mind, but God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has an excellent message on those two words, but God. The human race is in a deplorable situation. They're under the power of Satan. They're, They're running according to the course of their flesh and all of that. But God, being rich in mercy, intervenes. His grace is what magnifies. But God, rich in mercy. Sadly, Satan, as our brother Rob referenced, uh, is, is referred to as the God of this world that has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God there is still a blinding effect for those outside of Christ that takes place from the enemy. They are blinded so that they might not see the light of the gospel. How does Satan get this authority? Well, it's something that's been given to him, right? I mean, study the book of Job. I mean, Satan can't do anything unless God gives permission for that. There's an interesting verse where there's similar language in Luke 22... Uh, with the mock trials of Jesus, it says in 2252, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who came to him, Have you come with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. In other words, I have given you this hour. This is according to God's plan. You do not even know it, but you are puppets, really, just going through it by your own wicked, deceitful hearts. And that's what Paul, or Peter says in Acts chapter 2, according to the predetermined foreknowledge of God. But it's the same Greek construction, the power of darkness, the domain of darkness. And what uh, Jesus is saying at his arrest here is that this hour, this domain of darkness, has been given to you. For this hour. <laughs> so Paul speaks of us being rescued from this domain of darkness and being transferred. The word for transferred means to literally pick up and to move over here. It's, it's used in um, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Remember when he says, If I have the gift of prophecy, I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, and so as to remove mountains. It's the same word transfer, so that I can actually move mountains, but I do not have love, I have nothing. It actually only occurs, I think, four times in the Greek New Testament. So it's a picture of this, an ancient king that has a people that he loves, and there's war coming, and there's an enemy coming, or there's a volcano erupting, to where he literally moves those people to a place of safety, and that's exactly what God has done for us. He has transferred us into the kingdom and the rule of his own son. Or picture a military recon effort. Helicopters coming in, the enemy all the way around to get those last soldiers that are there and to get them out of there. That's the idea, to remove them and to put them in a place of safety. And this radical change is pictured for us in the form of light and darkness. There's was another hostage crisis I thought of, the Moscow theater crisis with the Chechenian rebels. Some of you might remember that 11 years ago, but 850 hostages held in a movie theater, and they all did not get out. But just picture yourself again. You're in this theater of darkness or whatever, you know, with guns aimed at you. Um, over 100 lost their lives, but the rest were rescued. Paul says in Ephesians 5, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of the light. And the idea of the kingdom of his beloved son just speaks of adoption, being in the family of God and all of that, and and I trust that you're familiar with that. Read the latter half of Romans 8 today if you're not, but we must hasten on. We've seen the powerful deliverance, and now in verse 14, the awesome benefits of salvation. The kingdom of his beloved son, and then this phrase, modifies son, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we have been redeemed from our slavery from sin. This verse, redemption is equated with forgiveness of sins, the way it's structured grammatically. In whom we have redemption, what is redemption? The forgiveness of sins. It's it's equated along the same line. The word redemption is a very rich word. It would have been a word that every first century here would be familiar with. One-third of the Roman world was slaves. What happens if you have one-third of the world slaves? There's a, it's, it's a big market, right? It's kind of like Qualcomm stock or something, else, you know, something that's a, a big commodity that people are, are exchanging all the time. Well, when you would purchase a slave, there would be a release that was made, and the root word is just lutro. It would be a word that this is Apolutro, but it's the idea that, that release, to buy back a slave or a captive, to, to deliver one. And so, again, the first century here would be very familiar with this word. It involves the payment of a ransom or to purchase something taken captive. Of course, that's in regards to physical slaves, right? But we needed redemption because we were in moral slavery to sin. You see, we were slaves of sin. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, Jesus says in John chapter 8. We personally were under the condemnation of sin without Christ. in absolute total bondage to do sin's bidding. And in a sense, sin was our master. And we would go wherever it led us. How did this happen? of course, Adam failed in the garden. He sinned. Sin spread to all men. So not only are we born in sin, but we're also sinners by practice. We were in total bondage to sin apart from Christ. We were without hope. The law condemned us because we could never obey God's glorious moral law in our own strength. We were children of wrath, enslaved to Satan. But then... That moment of time came when we were rescued from that domain of darkness. When we were forgiven. And redemption speaks of liberation from imprisonment. Freedom from bondage. Brothers and sisters, this is not merely something that we look forward to in the future. It is something that we have now. Look at what he says. We and whom we have redemption. We have this redemption now. Now. It's a glorious thing. It's a present reality. It's existing for us. He speaks of the same thing in Romans chapter 3, and 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing are you in Christ Jesus. But then the second half of the verse, and this is so glorious for us, who live and fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil on a daily basis, who come here as not to put on the perfect face as though we've been sinless all week, but those who know are keenly aware of where we have sinned this past week. And what Paul says here is we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, the remittance of our sins, the removal of our sins. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And that is great news, brothers and sisters, to think about and to meditate on that all of your sins have been removed. They have been removed from you. And the older you are in the faith, I think the more conscious you are of your own sin. And what that does is that invokes more love to the Savior and more adoration for the glories of the Gospel and the truth of the Gospel. This phrase, forgiveness of sins, does not occur often in Paul, uh, but it does occur often in the book of Acts. The Pentecost sermon of Peter, right? Repent, believe, believe, ...for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, the Church of Christ says, and be baptized. The Church of Christ says, so you have to be baptized to be saved. That's not true. In chapter 5, verse 31, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand... ...as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And the same phrase occurs in Acts 26, which we've looked at twice already today. So, brethren, not only does his blood secure your redemption but the forgiveness of past sins and your sin nature, but it covers your daily transgressions as well. That is, that outburst of anger that you may have had this last week, the lust in your mind or in your heart that you may have had this last week, the envy which you experienced in the workplace or on the ship this past week, Times of husbands acting more like dictators and leading in love and wives becoming bitter rather than submitting to their husbands and children who rebel and backbite against their parents and pride and a whole list of other sins that we experience on a daily basis. It is covered every one of them and that's something to rejoice in. That is why we practice the Lord's Table here on a weekly basis. We believe we need to be reminded of this. Just as sure as there is bread in the tray and wine in the cup, it reminds us that his body was broken into this righteous, sinless, perfect, spotless blood was shed for us to purchase our redemption. That's why the hymn writer can sing that it is well with his soul even when he's lost his four daughters at sea. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. First Corinthians 6.20 says, You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You see, sometimes I think we can cheapen the price. We can lower the bar as to what it really costs God to save us. I mean, He's omnipotent. He's sovereign. I mean, He could... He could have just, you know. And we lower that bar rather than thinking of everything that went in to the whole plan of salvation from eternity past to Jesus Christ taking on human flesh, accomplishing the work of salvation for us, paying for our sins, rising victoriously, and being interceding at the right hand of the Father. We have been bought with the price. The motivation to glorify God is because of that. And that's why we must keep short accounts with God and and with our brothers. And I've had to do this a few times this week. I hope you keep short accounts. But all the while, remember, Jesus has paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but He has washed it white as snow. One conclusion. Have you experienced this freedom in knowing that all of your sins are forgiven? Have you experienced the joy and the absolute delight that your sins are forgiven? Listen to this um, story about Martin Luther. Luther tells of a time in a dream when he found himself being attacked by Satan. And the devil unrolled a super long scroll and said, What about all these sins, Luther? And he said, Is that all? The devil pulled out another one, and he pulled out a third. And finally, Luther said, Is that all? Uh, Can you not find no, no more? And Luther responds, you've forgotten something. Luther exclaimed triumphantly, quickly write on each of those scrolls, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. See, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And he's going to come and he's going to remind you. And he's going to unload those scrolls sometimes. But we have to remember that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Jonathan Edwards has said, by Christ." Purchasing redemption, two things are intended his satisfaction and his merit. The one pays our debt and so satisfies, the other procures our title and so merits. The satisfaction of Christ is to be free from our misery, the merit of Christ is to purchase happiness for us. You see what he's saying there? It's not just to know that your sins are forgiven but it's actually to have joy and delight in the Lord. And if you read much John Piper, you'll you'll see where he gets some of those themes from. To purchase our delight. If you're trusting in Christ, you are not a slave anymore. You're free. The scars of Jesus Christ of which we sung, and Arise, my soul, arise, are a constant reminder that our sins have been paid for. It's a constant reminder of the high cost of our salvation that he has ransomed us by his blood and he has made us free. This is what makes Jesus so precious. This is what makes the gospel so precious to us. This is what caused the psalmist in Psalm 32 to say, how blessed, that is how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Or the hymn writer, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed by His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Nobody can take that from you. Paul has said he's qualified us to share in this inheritance. It's an inheritance that's signed in blood. It cannot be blotted out. It is yours if you're trusting Christ by faith. As ruined sinners, we must we understand we need deliverance from sin, and we have experienced that. And if you're outside of Christ, you need to understand that you're in the domain of darkness. You are, as it were, in the middle of the fifth largest wildfire on history, the Rim Fire. The fire is burning all around you. There's places that have been burned. There's new vegetation that is burning with flames licking 80 feet into the air. And that that fire, think of it as God's wrath against your sin. You only have one safe place to go. Try to outrun the fire, you're, you're done. That's folly. The place to go is where God's wrath has already been spent. The place where it's already burned. That's where you go. That's the place of safety. You're standing in the finished work of Christ and what He has done because the Father poured out His wrath upon His Son. That's the safe place to go, even in the midst of the rim fire. And if you will not go and will not embrace, embrace Christ by faith, you will be consumed in His just fury for all eternity. It is vital that you see your need of Christ. It is vital that you... Beg that he would remove the blinders that Satan has blinded your eyes to not understand or to see the Gospel. That you would see something glorious in what Christ has done. And so if you're in bondage today, you're invited to come and be released. To come and experience the redemption that is yours if you will but trust Christ, repent of your sin, and cling to Him. Every human being is guilty of dishonoring God. You've offended him. See your sin for what it is. Don't be like King Agrippa. Do you remember what he said at the end? Why, Paul, uh, the old king, thou almost persuadest me to become a Christian. Matthew Mead, one of the Puritans, wrote a book, The Almost Christian Discovered. There's a place where somebody can actually come, hear something of the gospel, but never fully embrace Christ. Don't be an Agrippa. Don't be an almost Christian. Throw yourself upon his mercy, begging that he would save you. Admit and mourn and weep over your sin and come to Christ and embrace him by faith. See him as a suitable, wonderful savior. See him as one that has satisfied God's wrath. See him as one that has extinguished the whole fire. That's what Christ has done. He has taken care of all of our sins, every one of them. And so what does that mean for us? That we would glorify him in all things. Will we do that perfectly? No. But we seek to do that. That's our heart. That's our, our, our mind as we want to glorify him in all things. May the Lord help us unto that end. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glories of the gospel of which we could just consider for a few moments this morning, and Lord, I pray for any here who are in the domain of darkness, Lord, that you would rescue, that you would transfer them to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we rejoice that we have redemption even this very moment, that our sins are forgiven. We glory, we boast in the cross. We thank you for our Savior's cross work and what it has accomplished for us